For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member bonus briefs, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening at 5 p.m. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com and select Become a Member. And don't miss our upcoming mini-series featuring interviews with some of the key players from David's upcoming book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm Simon Rosenberg, filling in for David Rothkopf. Not an easy job, but I'm going to try to do my best today. Since it's Thursday, I'm joined by Tara McGowan. Tara, how are you? I'm well. Good to see you, Simon. Good to see you. Welcome back. And we have an exciting episode for you today, action-packed, jam-packed. So let's get to it. We're first being joined by Nick Rathood, who's the campaign manager for Beto O'Rourke. Beto's campaign, to me, has been a really inspiring campaign on so many levels. Uh, and I'm really excited that Nick has been able to take the time to be with us today on the ground in Texas. I don't know where you are, Nick, but uh, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Well, it's an honor to be on with all of you all are also inspiring in your own right. and. I'm sitting here in Houston, Texas, where our headquarters are. So that's where I'm at today. So how are things going, Nick? Give us the update. I'll just put it in context for your listeners. We started this race when we came in about 15 points down. Greg Abbott had a $50 million cash on hand advantage. There were no good models for how to win statewide in Texas. It's been 30 some years. There is a party that's emerging, but not where it needs to be in a state the size also, the size and scale of Texas, people I don't think people understand the amount of money it takes to win here. 20 media markets, Harris County alone, um, just the population could make it the 25th largest state in the, in, the, in the country. So it's massive. It's massive. And so there's you know, these, these kind of challenges when you come into a race like this that you're, you're looking at. And, you know, I think over the course of the last year and a half, we've really built a exciting campaign. And We've cut into those numbers. The latest polling, you know, it's hard to poll in Texas, but there was one that just came out, margin of error. There was another one that had us at about four points. There's others that have us down by nine or 10. And so we think internally we're more closer to the four or five range. Early voting has started here in Texas as well. And we're watching those numbers. There's some good things happening. There's some challenging things happening. It's still Texas. So we're working those out and and really, really trying to hit, you know bring this home for the people of Texas. So that's where things are. 
So Nick, I, let me ask the first question, then I'll turn it to Tara. Is it what, what's been, so first of all, I've always just been impressed with Beto and his spirit and his courage and his passion and the way that he manages his campaigns and the way he does his politics is so, I think, inspiring to me. I mean, to be honest, and, and I, there are two things though, tactically in this race that I'd like you to just talk about. One is just the relentless grassroots events that you do, the way you conduct those events the way you showcase, for example, new voters, the ringing of the bell, right? Those kinds of things. And also just the organic media. I mean, talk a little bit about just the way you've thought about how you now reach voters in a different media and information environment and how you've sort of, in my mind, sort of, you know, you've sort of gone back to old tactics in some ways, but also invented new ones as well. I mean, just talk about the strategy behind all that. As I mentioned, we came in with a with a significant dollar disadvantage. And Again, 20 media markets, the paid media market is really expensive in, in Texas. And so we did, though, have this asymmetrical advantage on social media. So Beto has a huge following on social media. And we also understand that, you know, with, as you mentioned, a lot of people are consuming information in different ways, gathering it from, from social media, but also digital platforms. People are moving away from cable and getting things like YouTube TV and things like that. And so understanding that. We wanted to try to do something different in ways we communicate with voters. So, so much of the ethos of Beto campaigns, and this one in particular, is to travel and do events on a daily basis. I don't think any any campaign in the country, maybe ever, has done as many events as we do. And those things are so exciting uh, because we're connecting with Texans. We have incredible energy because of who Beto is. He's an incredible communicator. I think once in a generation candidate in how he communicates and connects with voters that we wanted to capture that content. So we built a digital program inside the campaign, our own content operation. And so at each of those events, we capture that content and we package it and we push it out on our social media platforms. And we talk to voters and we're trying to capture the energy in those environments that we see and we want to share with people. We also tell the stories of Texans that we meet at those events. You know, there's a lot of people who have similar stories, but we want to make sure that people understand that we're hearing and connecting to those people as well. And then giving, you know, some permission structure, you know, around those things, especially with Republicans and others, independents who might be a little bit afraid to vote for a Democrat in Texas or may not fully know where to go because the Republican Party has left them. And when they hear similar voices at these events who are people showing up who look like them, have the same values and are saying, you know what? I heard Beto, I want to vote for him. It allows us to be able to share that and hopefully, again, give people permission to, to maybe take a look at us and take a look at Beto because there is opportunity there. So that is how we're, we we really leaned in on being able to communicate people. And then I'll also say something about our events as well. When we do these events, they're not just Beto showing up and speaking, which is very important, as I just mentioned, but we're also signing up volunteers. Um, we have people there on the ground. One of the things we do is a call to action and we get people signed up to volunteer and host block walks and that sort of thing. And through that sort of organizing that we do, even at these events, we're now up to a hundred thousand volunteer army in the state of Texas in our campaign. So that is presidential level. I think it's historic for any campaign statewide in American history to have an organizing operation that big. And a lot of it comes from, from, from these events. That's incredible, 100,000 people. 
Nick, I'm really curious. I've I've seen the videos have been incredible. I think what you mentioned just now about creating a permission structure for folks is really, really important. I think you guys have done a fantastic job of letting the voters be the messengers um, around that and the candidacy and everything. And of course, there are so many layers, complicated layers to running a campaign in Texas. I do not envy your job, especially in a state that doesn't have infrastructure, but something I've always really, really respected um, about Beto and his his various runs for, for different seats of office in the state is that each one of his campaigns has contributed to building that infrastructure in different ways. And, and I think one of the most important ways is increasing, expanding the electorate in the state, bringing new voters onto the rolls. So can you talk a little bit about what new voter registration looks like and early vote looks like so far in the state to the degree that that can kind of signal enthusiasm around this race? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I'll I'll mention is that on your point on infrastructure. So I, I mentioned that we have this organizing infrastructure with is which is, you know, large and historic. But, you know, we didn't have any good models for how to win in Texas. Polling is off. More than a blue or red state, Texas is a non-voting state. And so what we decided to do was invest heavily in in a data and analytics operation inside the campaign. We have a literal nuclear scientist that's our data director um, inside the campaign. And so what that has done is teach us, you know, what the universe of voters are that we need to turn out. But also we've been spending the entire year learning what messages uh, work with certain segments of the of the of the population and certain geographic uh, geographical locations, that sort of thing. We also uh, have been testing what tactics work. So is mail going to work for this particular community or communities? Does phone calls or door knocks? And at those doors, what do we need to be saying? And so we're all we're bringing those things to bear and feeding that to our organizing operation, which again will allow us to be much more efficient and surgical at the doors and really leverage our organizing op- uh, operation that none of this was done before has ever been done in Texas. So those things are things that are going to we're going to leave behind. Just real quick in terms of what you're talking about in terms of population and demographic growth. And me and our team are not demographics or destiny people. You know, we we really want to treat people individually and learn as much as we can, because I think we get in trouble when we think demographics are going to be our destiny. But since 2010, 4 million new people have come into Texas. 88% of those people are, are now in the big urban metros. People of color made up 95% of that population growth. So those are incredible numbers for Texas in terms of the direction that it could potentially go and will go. And we've now, uh, in the last year, registered a million new voters into the rolls. So Beto lost by 200,000 votes in 2018. We have a, n- a million new voters that we've registered. Those demographic shifts are important to understand that we can get to a blue Texas because of that. And we're the infrastructure that we're building, I think, will not only teach us how to win statewide this time around, but also for the future. And those are building blocks that I think will transform American politics from now and uh, and for years to come. Nick, we're running out of time. And I just want to mention for um, we're being very respectful of the fact you've got important work to do. And I just want to mention to our audience that what he's describing in this grinding increasing the electorate and registration is exactly how we flipped Arizona and Georgia in recent elections. It's the same process where every election cycle, we're doing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, or, you know, doing this sort of a comprehensive organizing 
Uh, as I told all of you at the beginning, this is a very inspiring campaign. I'm so amazed by what you've been able to do, Nick. Congratulations. And from all of us here, good luck at the end. Any closing words for us? Anything we need to know? No, I appreciate the opportunity to share the story of the campaign and what we're doing in Texas. And, you know, I just want your your audience to to know that don't write off Texas, you know, now or in the future, because there is real opportunity. And I think with sustained investment, with sustained resources, it can really become, we can finally take something away from Republicans. So, uh, and Texas is a, is a big thing. So thank you. If you like Deep State Radio, you'll want to check out World Review with Evo Dalder from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each week, our friend Evo, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, talks with some of the world's leading reporters and commentators from the Financial Times, Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, and Axios, to name just a few. Evo and a rotating panel of journalists offer in-depth analyses and diverse perspectives on the week's most important emerging global news stories and why they matter. If you are hungry for more context on world events making headlines, and you're here listening to Deep State Radio, so we think you probably are, you might want to subscribe to World Review with Evo Dalder wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a live recording of World Review every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central at globalaffairs.org. And now we're transitioning to the second part of the show, where Rob Shapiro, uh, former Undersecretary of Commerce, the architect of the Clinton economic plan in 1992, Super smart guy, noted economist, old and dear friend of mine will be joining us. And Rob is here today to talk about two things. We had a very encouraging set of GDP numbers this morning, but also Rob has written a series of pieces in the Washington Monthly that have been well received in the family about how Biden's economic plans have been successful and how Americans are better off. And on this day where we had such good economic news in the final closing days of the election, we thought, let's bring Rob on to talk to him about all the stuff that he's seeing and his sense about where the American economy is and whether or not Joe Biden should be getting more credit for the good work of the last two years. So, Rob, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Simon. And thank you, Tara. Great to be here. Rob, tell us. Jump in here. I mean, we had good GDP numbers this morning. What's your take on where the American economy is? Does this, should this be a powerful opening for Joe Biden to make a closing argument about the success of his economic strategy over the last two years? Well, I think it is a good entry to making that case. The fact is, since the president took office, GDP has grown at an average annual rate of 3.3% per year on a quarterly basis. Now. That uh, let's compare that to the comparable period under Trump. And the data show that, it, that under Trump, it was 2.8%. That is substantially slower in, over the first seven quarters of their presidency than under, under Biden. And look, there's one main reason for this. We've created 10 million jobs so far. And every one of those jobs generates income and GDP. And those 10 million jobs, that's nearly three times the 3.7 million jobs that were created under a comparable, under the comparable period under Trump. 
So the fact is that the Biden economy is way outperforming the Trump economy over the same period. I'm not talking about the collapse of the economy under Trump during the pandemic. I'm just talking about the first seven quarters, almost two years. And this is a fine record. It's also it's also a lot better than George Bush's record in that period. It's frankly better than Barack Obama's record in that period. Um, and Obama had to deal with a similar challenge to Biden because the economy had collapsed right before he became president, too. And the fact is that we took more decisive action this time than we did last time. And the result is an employment boom and stronger average annual growth than we've seen since the 1990s. And Rob, talk a little bit about this idea of, are Americans better off today? What's happened with wealth, wages, incomes, all that? And we know inflation, we've had all this growth and inflation has been too high, but how have Americans, as we think about this election where the basic measure of an incumbent party is, have you, have you made things better for us, right? That's the basic question. What would be your answer? Well, you know, it's a complicated answer because, because of inflation. Though I think when we look at the record, this was a unexpected inflation. It frankly took everyone, including Larry Summers, by surprise. And given that, I think the record is really quite extraordinary. If you look at wages, average wages, wages and salaries, they've gone up before inflation by almost 15%. Now, if we look at, we then adjusted for inflation, there's been 8.3% inflation, and that's using not the CPI, but a more accurate measure from the Bureau of Economic Analysis called the GDP deflator. That's gone up 8.3%. So wages and salaries have nearly kept pace with this unexpected inflation. The difference comes to about less than $700 per person. However, then we look at what's happened to people's wealth because people's economic well-being is depends not only on their weekly paycheck, but also on the assets they own. Now, the Federal Reserve tracks all those assets. They look at net assets, which is the value of homes, less mortgages, and then the value of pension assets and stocks and bonds and personal savings, less other debts. And what we've seen is a very sharp increase in net assets, which is to say wealth. Moreover, for the first time in living memory, the net assets of people with low and moderate incomes have increased at a faster rate than the net assets of people at the top. Among the bottom 20% of households by income, their net assets increased by $1.2 trillion overall. That comes to $43,000 per household after inflation. The next 40% saw their assets go up by about $2 trillion. 
that was about $36,000 per household after inflation. And again, what's driving this increase? Well, part of it is the income from 10 million new jobs, but also the pandemic relief, much of which was saved by people. We had elevated saving rates. Now, higher income people did fine too. The top 40% of households saw their wealth go up by over $52,000 after inflation. But in percentage terms, the wealth of the bottom 20% jumped 36% under the president, compared to 17% for the next 20%, 12% for those right in the middle, and just 4% for the top 20%. So you do have wages and salaries very modestly lagging inflation by less than $700 over along over nearly two years. But that's pretty small compared to gains of $36,000 or $40,000 in net assets. And frankly, for wages and salaries to have kept pace with this unexpected inflation, driven primarily by the war in Ukraine's impact on energy prices and the policies of Saudi Arabia to constrain oil supplies. The fact that they've done that is pretty remarkable. It is much, much, a much better record than the last time we saw significant inflation in the 1970s and early 80s, in which wages and salaries were lagging far behind in real terms. President Reagan, who I didn't agree with on many things, the 1982 midterms, their, uh, their slogan was stay the course. And that was in the face of a serious recession. We've got a very good case to stay the course on uh, the Biden economic program. I couldn't agree more that we have a very good case on this side. I think the challenge is always making that case <laughs> and the difference between the, the the numbers and the facts and the story that's told. And also just to lift up that it is incredibly difficult to make anyone feel like things are going well or as good as they could go because it never feels that way for folks, especially when they are feeling um, the pinch of inflation. And Republicans have just been historically better at messaging on this. It's easier to blame Democrats when they are in power, when people are feeling the pinch or feeling the squeeze of inflation. And also, you know, they have run a decades long campaign of blaming tax and spend liberals and Democrats. And, you know, most people polled don't like taxes. So I'm, I'm curious, pulling out and away from the numbers, how you think that story is being told to Americans, if it's being told, and how it could be told better in these final days? Uh, I think it's being told, but it's being told in a whisper, and not many people are hearing it. It's not a complicated message to say we've had the strongest employment growth in 40 years. 10 million jobs is something that I think everyone can understand if they hear it again and again and again, but we don't hear it again and again and again. 
And I think the story about people's wealth can be told as well, that for the first time in living memory, the wealth of the bottom half of the country has been growing faster than the wealth of the top half of the country. That's a, that's a real achievement, and it's also something that people can understand. And on inflation, I think you say, look, we do have inflation. We have it mainly because of Vladimir Putin and MBS in Saudi Arabia. But <laughs> we have pushed back against that inflation. And in fact, people's wages and salaries are just about keeping up with this inflation, something that no other president facing unexpected inflation has been able to achieve. And apart from wages and salaries, everybody's richer. Uh, I also think what we're seeing President Biden do more of, but I agree with your assessment, it's not enough. And there needs to be a lot more repetition and reinforcement. But what he has been doing as of late, including today, um, with some of the events and the news that have come out of the White House, is laying out the clear contrast of how the economy got to this position beforehand, before he was able to lift it up and create these jobs and the role Republicans have played, because so much of the narrative that has to be chipped away that is is factually inaccurate is that the economy performs better under Republicans. Many Americans, when polled, say that they trust Republicans more on the economy. If the House is lost by the Democrats to the Republicans, it will be because of an economic argument that is not based in reality, but based in perception. And so I do think that it is it is great that we're seeing the White House and President Biden actually lay out that clear contrast between Republicans' economic position and agenda and his and Democrats. I just I hope that there's more of that and that it, it helps turn that corner. And I think that's going to take time. And maybe time's not what, what we have enough of right now. I think so, too. It's a Democrats have been making a serious mistake for the last six months about not talking about the economic record. And I think they were intimidated by the inflation. Um, and but again, it's not a hard talking point to understand that we've created 10 million jobs and we're we're creating jobs three times the rate that Trump created jobs. I think that's a simple message that if repeated just three or four times in each person's head, I think can stick. And it is it's kind of a mystery to me of why, you know, the Republicans are successful at claiming achievements they, they don't have. <laughs> and Democrats seem to not claim credit for achievements they do have. <laughs> well, Rob, listen, we really are grateful for you stopping by today. It's good to see you. Thanks for your continued excellent work. You can find Rob's recent articles in the Washington Monthly that um, have been, I know, widely read in the White House and distributed around the family and, and getting a lot of attention. And I just want to agree with you both that I think one of the greatest strategic challenges we have in the center left right now is that we have to close the gap with the Republicans in the economy. If we don't, we're not going to have the kind of political success that we want to have as a party and as a movement. Uh, this is an enormous strategic challenge for us, it's something Rob and I, frankly, have been 
tag teaming on quite a bit over the last couple of years uh, and uh, encouraging us to do better on this. And I will say, as Rob mentioned, I mean, the, the economic track record, this basic contrast between Democrats producing growing economies and lower deficits and better lives for American people and Republicans continually creating recessions, spiraling deficits and economic decline really has to become one of the essential contrasts of, of our politics over the next few years. It's an, I think it's an easy argument to make, and I think we have to commit to it as a family and make it aggressively again and again and again. And I think we can be successful, but you can't score unless you shoot, right? This brings us to the end of this first section. And this next section, which will be Tara and I musing about this incredible midterm election, will be only available to members of the DSR network. And for the rest of you who are just casually listening, enthralled by this great conversation, we're going to say goodbye to you. But for those of you who are members, fasten your seatbelt for a great conversation that Tara and I will begin now in just a minute. Thanks, everybody.